0: Not a single person saw her car at the Courtney's house anytime after 1015 a.m. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This episode is going to be a little different. As I mentioned in this week's Friday follow-up, my intention for today was to start to walk us through the investigation that led to the arrest and conviction of Deborah Perringer. My plan was to go through the trial transcripts from three different detectives who testified. But when I got into the trial transcripts and read what was there, it was little to nothing. Three different detectives they didn't get into any detail, they didn't testify for very long, most of it was focused on cuts on Debbie's fingers and bruises on her arms, and cross-examination didn't yield many results either. So I went back to the files and I was digging through the hundreds of files that I received from the Fort Worth Police Department, all of those files that didn't have file names, just numbers. And in the final hour, after I had already began to write the script based on the trial transcripts, I finally found a 47 page offense report in this report. It goes through a chronological timeline of the different elements of the investigation, all the way up to trial. I read through the report and there is information there that we did not have before. And there's also still a lot of unanswered questions, but because of the timing of when I found this and when we have to get this episode recorded, we're going to do this investigation in real time. So, What I'm getting at is I have not written a script for this episode. I'm going to be going through this report date by date and discussing what I see as we move along. I'm going to get through as much of it as I can before it's time that I have to send this to Mike for edit. And then we'll pick it up and continue next week. So this episode is the beginning of our investigation into the investigation that resulted in the conviction of Deborah Perringer. The first thing that I wanna point out before we dig into this report is how amazed that I am at how little information came out in this trial. I've read through the entirety of the state's case against Deborah Perringer, and there are no details, really none at all. The most detailed trial testimony we got was from Dr. Pirwani discussing the medical evidence, but his testimony still left us with questions. There are massive gaps in the DNA testimony and there are massive gaps in all of the detectives' testimony. It seems that the state went into this trial convinced that the only thing they needed to prove in order to convict Deborah Perringer was that her blood was on the scene, and they were successful. But what we are trying to do is a full-scale, proper investigation, focusing on every detail to make sure that we get it right. I'm going to start off with the first entry in this report, And right away, right here in the police report, we get an answer to a question, a detail, a gap that was left out of trial. In the very first paragraph, the report reads, Lloyd Courtney was due at work at 2 p.m. on November 2, 2001 at the Fort Worth Police Department and did not arrive for work, nor had he called. So there it is. This is what we expected from what we've seen in some of the TV shows. But the fact that that information didn't come out at trial... And there's no timeline whatsoever, in my opinion, speaks volumes. It's very clear that the state was avoiding any question of timeline. Now, either they didn't bother to look into the timeline or try to reconstruct the crime scene, or they did make that effort and they knew that they had massive problems. As we've discussed in our previous episodes, All of the evidence seems to indicate that Agnes was napping when the attack started. And all of the evidence seems to indicate that they were killed sometime around 1 p.m. or later. And all of the evidence indicates that Deborah Perringer had been gone from the house for at least an hour at that point. But I digress. What we know from this little element of the report is at least that Lloyd was due to be at work at 2 p.m. Most of this entry are items that we've already covered. Officer Gonzalez and Officer Galusha's first entry into the house, how they found Lloyd and Agnes. And we've already covered the crime scene investigation. But one thing that I do want to point out on this first day, this first report, is a notation that on that very afternoon, Mabel Zabo, the neighbor across the street, advised Officer Gonzalez that she had observed the Courtney's daughter, Deborah Perringer, at the Courtney's residence on the morning that the murders occurred. The report goes on to say that Mabel advised Gonzalez that Mrs. Courtney usually walked Deborah to the car or to the door when Deborah left. However, Mabel didn't see Agnes walk Debbie to the car on that day. Now, the issue we have with some of these reports is we don't know when they were actually written. Typically, what will happen is officers will take handwritten notes and then later type them into a formal report. Because the way this reads and as we move along, It seems that Deborah Perringer was the lead suspect right from the beginning. But these could have been written after the fact, after she had later become a suspect. Now, the next paragraph in the report is our first contact with Debbie. A detective Betcher, and a victim's assistance coordinator, Sue Jacobson, went to Debbie's house to notify her of the death of her parents. This is where we need to start documenting when Debbie said that she had bled on the crime scene. So the report says that the detective noticed that there were fresh cuts on Debbie's finger and that Debbie told him that she had cut her finger doing dishes that day and that she had also smashed her finger on some rocks. She doesn't say anything about bleeding at the Courtney's house in this encounter. As the report goes on, Debbie tells the detective that, quote, They've been waiting for this to happen because her dad was always getting threatening calls from people that he had put in prison. Then this segment of the report ends with the detective saying that Debbie told him that she had been at her parents' house at around 10 a.m. that morning and was only there for a short period of time. The next entry is from the next day, on the 3rd of November. Here we have Detective Hardy and Detective Betcher, who returned to speak with Deborah Perringer. During this visit, the detectives say that they noticed there was bruises on Deborah's right and left arms. But they didn't take any photos of them, which is interesting because they did take photos of the cuts on her fingers. Again, we don't know when this report was written. And later, we get another entry that explains why they didn't take any photos of the bruises. But nonetheless, they make sure to document here that she did have bruises on her arms and that they asked for her consent to take a buckle swab for DNA. And Debbie agreed and signed a consent form and the DNA swab was taken. Now the next entry is from the 4th of November and it just says that the autopsies were conducted on Lloyd and Agnes and the cause of death to both of them was blunt force trauma and multiple stab wounds. Then later that same day, an officer wales attempted to reconstruct the frying pan. We heard about that during Patrick Gass's testimony that they put it back together like a puzzle. And this is where we find out that there was a total of four frying pans and that some pieces were missing, including three of the handles. In the next paragraph, we finally get some details on Agnes' timeline and her movements that morning. I'll read this paragraph directly to you from the report. Detective Hardy learned during the investigation that Agnes Courtney had gone to a chiropractor on the morning of November 2nd. On November 6th, Detective Hardy interviewed Agnes Courtney's chiropractor, Weldon Honeycutt, who stated that he saw Agnes Courtney on the morning of November 2nd at approximately 8.45 to 10 a.m. at his residence in Burleson, Texas. Weldon Honeycutt advised Detective Hardy that Agnes Courtney went to a produce market behind his house after leaving his residence. Detective Hardy then met with the owner of the produce market, Barbara Parks, who did state that Agnes Courtney did come by their produce market after leaving Weldon Honeycutt's residence on November 2nd. Barbara Parks stated that Agnes Courtney gave her a receipt that she had just gotten from Weldon Honeycutt's wife, Billie Jean Honeycutt. Next we go to November 7th. So now we are five days after the murder. Here, Detective Hardy goes to interview Stefan Joe Zabo and Mabel Zabo, the neighbors across the street. Joe told the detective that on the morning of the murders, he did see Deborah Perringer's car parked in front of the Courtney's residence. And then Mabel again advised the detective that she'd observe Perringer's car in the front of the Courtney's residence for, quote, an extended period of time that morning, not a short period of time, as claimed by Deborah Perringer. End quote. So already we're starting to see where this is going. Now, when they interviewed Debbie the first time and she said that she was there that morning, all she said, according to this report, is that she was there around 10 a.m. and she stayed for a short period of time. She doesn't say how long that was, whether that was five minutes, 30 minutes, two hours. But the detective here is already pointing this out as a great discrepancy because the neighbor across the street says that she was there for an extended period of time as compared to what Debbie said which is a short period of time. Then the section of the report goes on to say that Agnes usually walked Debbie to her car, but she didn't that morning. She says that she never saw Agnes that morning. But I want to point out that in her original interview, or at least the original notes that are left in this report, Mabel said that Agnes usually either walked Deborah to her car or walked her to the door. And now it's changed to she always walked her to the car. Next, we move on to November 8th, the day of the funeral. Now, I want to point out here that at this point, police have already spoken with the neighbor in the backyard that said that she saw the strange man and the composite was written up. But we have not seen a word of that yet in this report. Rather, we have this entry, quote, Detective Hardy interviewed Michael Brown, who had attended Lloyd and Agnes Courtney's funeral and burial. After the burial service, Michael Brown observed Deborah Peringer at one of the Courtney's casket for approximately 10 minutes. While Deborah Peringer was at the casket, Michael Brown observed Deborah Peringer say what appeared to be, quote, "I'm sorry, Daddy." Now, this next part is interesting, mostly because these people did not testify at trial for the state. Detective Hardy interviews one of Agnes Courtney's nieces, Susan Adams. Now, we hear this story written and repeated throughout this report in several places. Basically, the family got together, it sounds like, after the funeral. When Debbie came in, she went straight to the bathroom. Some people say she vomited. Some people just say she was in there for a little while. And then she asked her husband to leave, and then they left together. But in this report, Agnes's niece says, according to the report, that when she went into the bathroom to check on Debbie, she observed a cut on her finger as well as bruises and a scratch on her arm. Then the detective says that he also spoke with her mother vanita reeves who says that she also observed the cut on debbie's finger as well as bruises and what looks like fingernail marks on deborah's arms now if this is true it's pretty damning evidence but what we have here is multiple occurrences as you'll see as we move through this report and the report as far as we get today will be posted on the website but in multiple instances police say that they have observed these bruises There's another officer that says that he observed the bruises at the funeral. And here we have family members who both say they saw scratches on Deborah's arms. Her aunt Vanita says that she saw what looked like fingernail scratches on her arms. And yet we don't hear from either of these people at trial, which makes me very much question the validity of the report. Now, from this point forward, as I move along, I'm going to be skipping large sections of the report, and that's because it starts, goes through a timeline, and then jumps back, and then we get to a point where we go day by day what was happening with specifically the investigation into Debbie Peringer. But a lot of this stuff we've already heard. It's all stuff from the crime night. So I'm just going to stop on elements that we haven't heard before. One of those elements is now a more detailed description of Detective Betcher when he went to inform Debbie that her parents were dead. In this report, it says, quote, Deborah kept saying, not my mama, not my mama, but she did not shed any tears. As we continue on with this section of the report, we find out that, according to Debbie, the reason that she'd went to her parents that morning was because they had bought some trees for her husband Paul for his birthday, and she went there to get the receipt. Then as it goes on, Debbie tells Detective Betcher that there was a guy that was supposed to come to her parents' house to look at remodeling the bathroom. And we also find out through this part of the report that Lloyd's wallet was never located, which we already knew, and it also says that there was no garage door opener in the car that was parked in the garage, which now opens, pardon the pun, a lot of doors into how someone could have gotten in and out of the house with the doors being locked. In the next entry we find out that on november 3rd so the day after the murders detective hardy did contact a guy named terry hall he was the contractor that was supposed to be giving an estimate to do work on the courtney's house he came in the station there was an interview and he told police that he had met with mr courtney and as of the point when the murders occurred he had yet to get back with them with an estimate and then detective hardy sets up an appointment to meet with the courtney's adopted daughter brenda and her husband that meeting occurred on the 3rd of November at 1.15 p.m. During this meeting, Brenda and her fiancé both told the detective that they hadn't been to the Courtney's house since Mother's Day of that year, so about six months before the murders. And then both of them volunteered buckle swabs for DNA and gave their fingerprints for analysis. In the next entry into the report, and this occurred on the same day, November 3rd, and this is at about 3.25 p.m., so after Brenda and her fiance were interviewed. Detective Hardy interviewed Agnes's nephew, Billy Ray. Now Billy Ray's the guy that mowed their lawn normally. And in this interview, he says that he did not have a key to the Courtney's house. And quote, if they were not going to be there when he was coming over, they would leave the garage door opener under a yellow flower pot in the back porch. Now, this is obviously another frustrating gap in the investigation. Nowhere do we hear that any detectives went back and looked under the flower pot to see if the garage door opener was there. But also, Billy Ray doesn't say that he was supposed to be there that day, and both Agnes and Lloyd were there. So there would be no reason for them to leave the garage door opener out for him. But if they normally kept one there, and it wasn't there anymore... That could be the way that the killers got into the house, right through the garage door. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Later on the evening of November 3rd, Detective Hardy notes in his report, and it's not clear if this was the same visit that we read about earlier in the report, but he says here that he returned to Deborah Parenter's house to speak with her. In this section, Debbie's husband Paul states that he had been watching Debbie closely because he was afraid that she was going to kill herself. And they had given her sleeping pills so she could get some sleep. Here is the part where Detective Hardy says that he photographed the cuts on Debbie's fingers. Then the report goes on to say that he asked Debbie what shoes she was wearing when she went to Agnes and Lloyd's house that day. And Debbie showed the detectives a pair of slip-on shoes, which are photographed and are already up on the website. Then as the report continues, Debbie explains that she thinks her parents had had some credit cards, but she didn't know which bank they were through, but that they did most of their banking at Bank One. And then Debbie and Paul stated that they had borrowed $25,000 from Debbie's parents. Paul stated that the courtneys had told them that if they died before Deborah and Paul paid them back, that the unpaid balance would just come out of their inheritance. According to the report, Paul told them that they hadn't paid them back because he had gotten sick and they had to file for bankruptcy. And based on some other information in the report, it looks like what had happened is that Paul got cancer and had to go through chemotherapy. And that was really the source and reason for their financial hardships. During this interview, Detective Hardy finds out that Debbie and Paul did not have a computer at their house. And then here we have an explanation as to why Detective Hardy decided not to photograph what he claims were bruises on Debbie's arms. From the report, quote, Detective Hardy and Detective Betcher both observed what appeared to be bruises just appearing on Deborah's arms. When detectives asked Deborah what happened to her arms, Deborah said that she had a, quote, bad day yesterday and that she had fallen down the stairs at her house. Detectives were unable to photograph the bruises because the bruises were too faint. End quote. Now, I'm not saying that Debbie didn't have bruises on her arms. The problem is, and what I am saying, is that I have no way of knowing if she had bruises on her arms. I find it very suspect that the detectives investigating a murder who it's pretty clear from this point are already looking towards Debbie as a suspect. She's the only one that they know was at the house that day and they've already interviewed her twice and they found the cuts on her fingers that they wouldn't at least attempt to take photos of the bruises. I don't know why someone would think that a bruise would be too faint to show up in a photo when they can see it with their naked eye. So we have multiple entries in this report about these bruises on our arms, but we have no photos of the bruises whatsoever. During this visit, the detectives asked for a consent to search Debbie's vehicle, which she granted them. Now, what's not mentioned anywhere in these reports is the fact that nothing was found in her vehicles. Now, we heard at trial that she had the probate book, the book about wills, in her trunk. But according to the ME, and what all of the evidence indicates, is that the killer would have been covered in blood after this crime. And what we know that's not in this report is that the car was later taken to the impound and completely processed by police, and there was not a single drop of blood found inside of that car. There was no evidence whatsoever found in the car that indicated that Debbie had committed these murders. But the results of that processing is not even listed in the report. Next, we find out that on that same day, the day after the murders, an officer, LeBlanc had stopped a man for a traffic violation. The guy's name was Emilio Villa Gomez. After the stop, the officer saw the composite that it had made from the doctor that lives behind the courtneys who saw the man in the backyard and immediately thought of this driver that he had just issued citations to. The guy fit the description, he looked similar to the composite and he was wearing a blue jumpsuit. Now, according to what we've seen on TV, when people have talked about this case on the show Snapped and some other TV shows, The man was interviewed and alibied, but we don't see that here in the report. It just says that Detective Hardy then later tracked this guy down, and the guy confirmed that it was him who had been pulled over and issued the citations, and Detective Hardy obtained a photograph of Emilio and his vehicle. And that's all we have about it in the report, at least at this part. And I can tell you from reading through it, that's all we ever hear about this guy again, all the way up to Debbie's arrest. Next, we see in the report that Detective Hardy spoke with a woman named Laura Maxine Robertson, who lived just north of the Courtney's. There's nothing really interesting from her report other than she confirms that she saw Debbie's car parked out in front of the Courtney's house at some time around 9.30 or 10 a.m. Now, again, that's not super important, but what I want to point out is we have witnesses that say they saw Debbie at the crime scene. Several, actually. Debbie admits she was at the crime scene. Debbie says she was there around 10 a.m. Mabel Zabo says she saw Debbie there around 10 a.m. and around 10.15 she saw her walking out to her car. And the next-door neighbor says she saw her there around 9.30 or 10 a.m. What we don't have is anyone saying that Debbie was anywhere near the house anytime after 10 a.m. The latest report we have of Debbie actually being at the crime scene was Mabel Zabo, who said it was about 10.15 a.m. when she saw Debbie walking out to her car. Now, as they say, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, but it seems that everyone in this neighborhood, Mabel and Joe Zabo, Maxine Robertson, everybody seems to be watching what's going on all the time, and everybody has the same story about when they saw Debbie's car there, and no one, not a single person, says they saw Debbie anywhere near the house or even in the neighborhood, anywhere close to the time when we believe the crimes were actually committed. The next entry is from November 4th. In this entry, Detective Hardy says, quote, returned a phone call to Judge Leanne Dauphineau, who stated that she was a relative of Agnes Courtney. Leanne stated she was with Agnes's family members and was advised that the Courtney's daughter, Deborah, had come over to where the family was gathered. Deborah was very quiet and ran into the bathroom. Leanne stated that she was advised by family members that they had noticed bruises on Deborah's arm. Leanne also stated that Deborah's husband, Paul, told Leanne that Deborah had smashed her finger on a rock and fell downstairs, causing the bruises on her arms. End quote. Now, this is the first, but it's not the last time we hear from Judge Dauphineau in this case. She's mentioned several times throughout the report. It seems that her position at the time at the courthouse afforded her access to some information that the police really weren't wanting to release. <laughs> On November 5th, Detective Hardy contacted Bruce Tony with TDCJ and ordered photo spreads of Deborah and Paul Perringer, and he also requested information on recent releases from TDCJ. So we have some indication here that the detectives were looking outside of Debbie as a suspect because of the note they wanted to see who had recently been released from prison. And then we have an entry from that same day that says, quote, Leanne Dauphineau, that's the judge, Agnes's niece, contacted Detective Hardy and stated that she had heard at the courthouse that Deborah Perringer was the main suspect. Detective Hardy did not relate any details to Leanne. Leanne also stated that on Saturday, November 3rd, she told Paul Perringer that if they thought that they were the main focus of the investigation, then maybe they needed to contact an attorney. So this is not only interesting, but it's important, at least for context. So at the time, Leanne Dauphineau was still a judge and she was working in the courthouse. And word was already going around three days after the murders that Debbie was the main suspect. Now, we really don't know if the police were right or wrong at this point, but it is important to understand in the context of where the investigation goes from here and why we have so many gaps that it seems that Deb Perringer was the main focus and the main suspect right from the very beginning. Also on November 5th, Detective Hardy went and met with a woman named Tammy Jera. Tammy told him that her parents live right next door to the Courtney's, and that on the morning of the 2nd, the day of the murders, she went to her mother's house at approximately 8 a.m. and left at approximately 8.15 a.m. She said that when she left her mother's house, she noticed a dark blue car in the driveway. Now, the assumption here is that that's Debbie's car, because her car was dark blue. But the interesting part is that, according to Tammy Jira's memory, the car was parked in the driveway and not on the street where both Mabel and Joe Zabo saw it. On the 6th of November, we have more notes from when Detective Hardy interviewed Barbara Parks, the owner of the produce market. She said that on the day of the murders, at somewhere between 10 and 10.30 a.m., an elderly white female, who she later discovered was Agnes Courtney, did come to the market after leaving the Honeycuts, the chiropractor right next door. She says that Agnes gave her, which I said earlier was a receipt, but looking closer now, it says it was a recipe from the chiropractor's wife. And she says that she bought cherry tomatoes, bananas, and some Mrs. Renfro's corn relish. After the interview, Detective Hardy drove the route from the produce market back to Agnes and Lloyd's house, and he says that it was a 23-minute drive. So based on all of this testimony, we can narrow Agnes' timeline, if all of this is accurate, to getting home somewhere just before 11 a.m. She says that she was at the market from about 10 to 10.30. She was there for about 20 minutes. So I think that means she left at about 10.30. And then there's a 23-minute drive home. And she only had three items, according to Barbara Parks, that she bought at the produce market. The cherry tomatoes, bananas, and the corn relish. On the 7th of November, so now again, we're five days after the murder, Detective Hardy met with an Ann Cook, and she worked with the AFIS department at Fort Worth PD. And she stated that they had pulled 11 prints that had been submitted to CSSU, and only two of them were of value. Then the next notation says, quote, Detective Hardy later made contact with Ann Cook, who compared the prints of value with both the Courtney's, Deborah and Paul Perringer, Brenda Stuckett, James Irwin, and Billy Ray Sinkfield. However, none of the prints matched end quote which means and this again was not really addressed or hammered down very hard at trial at all is the fact that there was two prints found at the scene that were of value and didn't match deborah didn't match her husband didn't match her sister didn't match her husband didn't match the nephew and didn't match either of the courtneys so there were two unknown fingerprints found at the crime scene On the same day, on November 7th, the computer was sent to an officer, T.A. Lawrence. He's a computer forensic officer, and they wanted him to conduct a forensic examination on the Courtney's computer. And then we have a note on the same day that says that a detective, Brannon, assigned to the homicide unit, was at the funeral and says that he was standing about 10 feet away from Deb, and he observed bruises on her arms. And he says that Deborah went to Lloyd's casket for about 15 seconds, but then went to Agnes's casket for a much longer time. And remember, another officer said that they observed Deborah at Agnes's casket saying, "quote I'm sorry." With Lucky Landslugs, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick, so I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Then on November 7th, Sergeant Anderson contacted Detective Hardy and let them know that the Fort Worth PD Crime Lab was going to take the note that was on Lloyd Courtney's leg to the Dallas DEA to be processed for any physical evidence. And then we find the thing that we've been looking for. Remember last week after we spoke with Dr. Ambers, and she said she just did not believe that the Fort Worth PD would wait five months to send the evidence from the crime scene for DNA testing. And here we find out she was exactly right. On November 7th, five days after the murders, we have this entry in the supplemental report. Detective Hardy met with Carla Davis, Fort Worth Police Department Crime Lab, and discussed the evidence that was being collected by CSSU officers from the crime scene. Carla stated that she would begin processing the evidence for DNA. This is a big deal, and it's something that we need to chase down much further. At this point, from the documents that I have and the documents that the Innocence Project of Texas has, the only DNA testing that was conducted were those that were conducted by Orchid Cellmark five months after the murder. We have here in this report, there's no details, just a notation that the Fort Worth Police Crime Lab, that we know was doing bad practices that later resulted in them being shut down for a decade, at least began doing DNA testing on the evidence just five days after the murders. Then on November 8th, we find something that really caught my attention when I was looking through the documents that we have. In the files that we have available to us, and we'll break these down in detail later, we have phone records for Agnes and Lloyd Courtney and their adopted daughter, Brenda. But what we don't have is any phone records for Deb Berenger, which is really shocking to me because she was the main suspect. Why would they not pull her phone records? I thought maybe I just didn't have the file, but when I look in this report, it says on November eighth, quote, Detective Hardy faxed a grand jury request for the Courtney's cell phone records, Paul Peringer's cellular phone records, and Brenda Stuckert's cellular phone records. End quote. So for some reason, the police only wanted to pull the phone records for the victims, the main suspect's husband, and the victim's adopted daughter. Now again, this falls just into that category of things that make you go, hmm. I'm sure there could be a possibility that maybe Debbie didn't have a cell phone, and that's why they didn't pull the records. But it definitely jumped out at me that, for some reason, they got everybody's cell phone records except their suspects. Later that day, we're still on November 8th here, Detective Hardy makes another notation that he interviewed the funeral home director, a guy named Matt Neal. Mr. Neal apparently told Detective Hardy that he also observed the cuts on Deborah's fingers and he observed bruises on her left forearm. Now, if you're keeping track, this is starting to tally up. There are a lot of people, Deborah's family, the funeral home director, several cops, who all said they saw bruises on Debbie's forearms. And a couple said they saw fingernail scratches. But as I said earlier, what I still find really odd about this is that none of these people testified at trial, which seems to be pretty shocking because the case is, if you look at it, actually pretty weak. I mean, yes, there's the DNA evidence, but there's problems with that. And the state got lucky that the defense attorney didn't challenge those DNA results at all. But the idea that she had bruises and cuts on her forearms right after the attacks would be a big deal. And they're saying here in these police reports that they have multiple witnesses that all saw these bruises, and none of them, except for the couple of police officers, testified at trial about it. Now, I'm not saying that these bruises weren't actually there. There's nothing to suggest that that's true, and in fact, Deborah told police and testified that she had fallen down the stairs on the day or the day after the murders, and that's why the bruises were there. And in the next entry, Detective Hardy speaks with some more members of Deborah's family, and in this one, the report says that there are transcripts from an audio-taped interview. And I do have the audio-taped interviews, but they sent them to me in a format that is completely unlistenable. You can't hear anything. But it says that there's transcripts. Unfortunately, I don't have those transcripts. But during this interview, according to these notes, one of Deborah's family members says that she believed the scratches were from Deborah doing it to herself, that they were self-inflicted wounds because she was nervous. In the next entry, Detective Hardy is having a conversation with the adopted daughter Brenda, and Brenda tells him that there was usually, at least in years past, there had been a key on a string on the side of the Courtney's house. And this is interesting because after hearing this, the detective then goes to the Courtney's house and looks for the key and it says he could not locate the key. But let's not forget about the garage door opener. Remember, we have the notations earlier that the garage door opener was missing. We have the notation from the Courtney's nephew who mows their grass, who says that when he was coming, if they weren't going to be there, that they would leave a garage door opener under a planter in the back of the house. But we have no entry that says that anyone ever went to check for it. And that really is important because that's one of the things that Mabel Zabo across the street said that was strange about the scene that day. Is that whenever Agnes was home, she left the garage door up. But when she would leave, she would close the garage door. So obviously she was home, she was found in the house, her car was inside, but the garage door was closed and mysteriously were missing the garage door opener. On the 12th of November, we have a notation that says that a Jeff Kearney contacted Detective Hardy. Now, based on the context here, it looks like Jeff Kearney must have been Deborah's original attorney. The note says that he called the detective to let him know that given Deborah's mental state and previous mental history, that he was not going to bring her in for an interview. But he said that she would come in and give her fingerprints. So, this is just important for us to know when it comes to how Deborah's story came about about the blood and the bruises and the cuts, that Debbie was never actually interviewed by police. She was spoken to by police and the victim's assistance coordinator on the day that her parents were killed, and then there was an informal conversation with the detective that we have noted in the report the next day, but she never actually sat down and gave a recorded interview at the station. Later that same day, we have a notation in the report from a Bob Adkins who works in the crime lab. He relayed to Detective Hardy that the note had been processed, but there were no fingerprints found on it. A small portion of the note was cut away and sent for DNA testing, also to the Fort Worth Police Crime Lab, and that he also processed the knife that was used to stab into Lloyd's leg for prints, and nothing was found. So again here, what's concerning me is we have multiple notations in this report that the Fort Worth Police Crime Lab was doing work on this case, but we have none of their results available to us, and nobody from the crime lab actually testified at trial. On the thirteenth of November, we start to get an idea of Deborah Perringer's schedule. Detective Hardy went to the Harvest Christian Academy, which is where Deborah's daughter Angela goes to school. He met with the assistant principal and she said that school starts at eight AM, but the children could be dropped off as early as seven thirty AM. Now Deborah's recollection of events was that she dropped her daughter off to school and went from there over to her parents' house, which fits again with everybody else's accounts that somewhere around 8, 8.15, she arrived at the Courtney's house. Mabel Zabo said she saw her there at that time. The neighbor's daughter said she saw her there about that time. So, again, what, I, what I'm really getting at here is everyone in the neighborhood, and I know I have already said this earlier in the episode, but it just keeps coming back to me, that everybody in this neighborhood is paying attention to what's happening. Everybody's watching the Courtney's house, and everybody saw Deb come, and then they didn't see her there anymore. Mabel's the only one that said she saw her possibly leave. But the point is, Deb says that somewhere around 10 or 11 after she stayed for, quote, a short period of time, she left the house. And there is zero, none, nada, no evidence whatsoever that she was there after that time. Not a single person saw her car at the Courtney's house any after ten fifteen a.m., and that really should stand out in your mind. Because everything Debbie's saying has been confirmed. She said she dropped her daughter off at school and she got there around 8 o'clock. We talked to the school. Yes, the kids get dropped off between 7.30 and 8. There's multiple witnesses that said they saw her there at 8. She said she stayed for a short period of time and then left. And Mabel Zobel says she saw her walking to her car at 10.15. And then no one sees her at the house after that. What are the odds? that everyone, multiple people, saw her there when she said she was there, but it just so happened that not a single person saw her there after she said she was gone. Now, we still have a long way to go on this report, and I'm sorry if this is a difficult episode to listen to. Uh, This is not nearly as organized as I like to be, and I've got to get this off to Mike for edit. It is late on Friday right now. But before I leave you, I'm going to jump ahead in the report to give you an idea of some things to come next week And then I promise next week will be much more organized. But I want to point out two different notations that are in the report a few pages beyond where we're at right now. One of them is from January 2, 2002, at approximately 9.25 a.m. It reads as follows, quote, Detective Hardy met with Carla Davis from the Fort Worth Police Department Crime Lab. Carla stated that she was still working on the evidence. And then eight days later, on January 10, 2002, the report reads, Detective Hardy met with Carla Davis. Carla stated that she was hoping to resume DNA testing starting the week of January 21st. We've got a long way to go, and I can't tell you just yet what all of this means, but what we can confirm from this report is that the DNA results that were provided to us, the DNA results that were discussed at trial, are not representative of all of the DNA testing that was done. Just like Dr. Angie Amber suspected, the Fort Worth Police Crime Lab did, in fact, do DNA testing. In that January 2nd notation, it states that Carla is, quote, still working on the evidence, meaning she had been working on it, and at that point we know that the evidence was submitted to her months before and then on the 10th it says she is hoping to quote resume the dna testing of that evidence indicating once again that she had already done dna testing we're going to continue on with the investigation of the investigation into deborah perringer next week on truth and justice Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondering. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay wood Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at Truth, and Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M U R R B G A M I N G don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.